This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on corporate board diversity both the statistics themselves and the context that gives them meaning. Our phones are open at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to hear from you if you have questions or would just like to join the conversation. Once again, our number is one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. So here's the good news first. A recent report by the Alliance for Board Diversity in Deloitte reveals that the number of women and minorities on boards at Fortune 500 companies is at an all-time high. In fact, well over half of Fortune 500 boards have reached diversity levels of at least 30% of women and minorities. That's progress, but the flip side is that means 70% of these boards are still white men. And the issues connected to board diversity are significant including what motivates these changes and what actually contributes to them. Is the pipeline to board membership being strengthened? Not to mention the ever-critical factor of inclusivity. We'll be talking about all of this and more with someone who may very well be the most perfect person for this conversation. Deb DeHaas is vice chairman and national managing partner of the Center for Board Effectiveness at Deloitte. She's here to discuss missing pieces, the report I just mentioned. But let me tell you a little more about her before we begin. In this current role, Deb leads Deloitte's boardroom programs that support corporate boards and directors in fulfilling their governance-related responsibilities. This follows her six-year term as the chief inclusion officer for Deloitte, where she drove Deloitte's strategy to not only recruit, develop, and promote a diverse workforce, but quite importantly, to foster an inclusive environment where all leaders thrive. Deb, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you here today, and I'm excited to talk about what I feel is a very important topic. (laughs) Me too. So let's get to it. I want to start with a basic question. This report that's come out, what do the numbers tell us about the progress that's been made? What did you learn? Yeah, well, um, first of all, um, there has been progress, and you, you noted that earlier. And I think there are some things that we can be proud of and that we can celebrate. And certainly, as you mentioned, uh, this report focuses on board leadership in both the Fortune 100 and the Fortune 500 companies. And so, as you mentioned, um, both Fortune 100 companies and Fortune 500 companies as an overall group have achieved their highest level of diversity. And in this case, where we're talking about diversity, we're thinking about it both from a gender perspective, but also uh, tracking it from a race, ethnicity perspective. And this work that the Alliance for Board Diversity has undertaken, they started their work in 2004. We've been proud to be their partner for their last uh, two reports in 2016 and 2018. Um, and so, again, we've, we've achieved the highest level of diversity in the Fortune 100. The Fortune 100 actually um, is more diverse uh, than the Fortune uh, 500. And I think a couple of things that are uh, noteworthy. Uh, certainly, one of the goals that the Alliance for Board Diversity established when uh, this effort was initiated was to achieve 40 percent uh, diversity. Okay, so the- that's the target. That's the target, and initially the hope was, was that that could be accomplished by 2020, so obviously just, uh, just around the corner. And, you know, I think a couple of things that really do stand out. So in the Fortune 500 companies, um, really terrific uh, progress in those companies hitting that 40% diversity um, benchmark. In fact, the results nearly tripled in 2018, um, achieving 145 companies that had over uh, 40% uh, board diversity. And when you go back to 
2012, um, that number was only um, 54. So that's, you know, quite a significant increase. And again, um, getting close to a third of the Fortune 500 companies that have achieved that 40 percent board diversity. How was that 40 percent determined? Why is that the magic number? Well, um, you know, sometimes you just have to, to pick a number, right, that's <laughs> right. going to be um, something that's aspirational and that you can strive for. And, you know, I think the feeling was, and I'm, I'm certain we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more later on, that, you know, 40%, again, for the combination of women and or um, diverse leaders uh, in the boardroom gave enough uh, critical mass of diversity that um, that the power of that diversity could be most uh, impactful. And certainly there's a lot of research that would suggest when you only have perhaps one person who's diverse mm-hmm. or maybe two, uh, it's much more difficult for that uh, diversity to be uh, as impactful. Yeah, we've referred to them, and I think we learned this from uh, the McKinsey report, as the onlys. You right. know, the people who are there, the only ones like themselves in the room. So it makes it hard for their voices to be heard. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's not that 40 percent is the maximum. It's that at 40 percent, you start to achieve the kind of diversity in the room that lets all of the voices make an impact. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, you know, I think some things that are very positive. In fact, um, one of the things I mentioned earlier, but just to be very clear, the Fortune 100, which are, of course, then larger companies, are, in fact, more diverse than the Fortune 500. And one benchmark that I think is is actually very noteworthy this year in the Fortune 100 companies is that there are 46 of the 100 companies in the Fortune 100 that have achieved 40% or more uh, diversity. So it's almost half. Almost half. um, Ten have um, 50% or more, greater than 50%. And um, another thing that's fantastic is that three-quarters of the Fortune 100, uh, 75 companies have achieved 30% or more. So, again, some really great progress I think we can be excited about, um, but there's always a but. Uh, (laughs) The pace has been definitely slower Mm -hmm. uh, than we would hope, and I think there are clearly um, still some areas when you peel the numbers back that indicate that there's more work to do. Absolutely. And that's part of what I want to do on the show with you today is peel some of this back so that we can understand what the factors are behind this, what the experience, why this stuff matters and what the experiences are for these people and how we can understand it in a way that gives all of this meaning for us. So I want to start by saying why this difference between the Fortune 100 and the Fortune 500? Is scale and money a factor in this? You know, that's such a great question. And, um, you know, the answer has been a little bit difficult to understand. One of the things we did try to do in the research this year was to find um, positive correlation uh, amongst the data. And the one thing that we did find, the strongest positive correlation with board diversity uh, amongst the Fortune 500 list was, in fact, um, tenure on the Fortune 500 list. And I think you know that that's a dynamic list of companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Companies come and go depending on their size or or perhaps because of transactions, uh, mergers, acquisitions, et cetera, that that change um, the the dynamics. And certainly in the last 10 years, that list has been much more dynamic than it was um, historically. So tenure was um, a factor. And I think, you know, perhaps this is a bit anecdotal, um, I do feel that the companies who have um, are larger, um, many of those companies uh, may have, in fact, been around longer, or perhaps they have a more global uh, presence. They have global clients, customers, uh, employees. And so I think perhaps part of this as well is that those companies have, in fact, recognized uh, the importance and the value of bringing those diverse voices uh, into their boardrooms. And so when you talk about tenure, you're not talking about individual tenure. You're talking about the stability of those companies on that list. That's right. So in other words, it it suggests that the more mature companies, and not in age, but in um, their ability to continue to move forward with their own strategies, may be yielding better results. 
That's right. And, you know, our report stopped with the uh, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, there's many other uh, groups that, that track uh, diversity on boards. Um, one group that I'll give a, you know, very powerful shout-out to is uh, Equilar, and they've been focused on the Russell 3000 companies, which, of course, um, you know, goes much further down in terms mm-hmm. of size into small and mid-cap companies. And that really reinforces that those companies that are smaller are, in fact, um, less diverse. And one thing that Equilar tracks actually quarterly is what they call their gender uh, diversity index, and they track the number of companies with uh, zero women uh, directors on their boards. And as of the third quarter of 2018, in fact, there were slightly over 500 of the Russell 3000, uh, 504 companies that had boards with zero women directors. Oh, my God. You would think it's a joke that you're tracking the zero number, but it's real and it's important. It it, it is real. And, um, you know, I think one thing that is encouraging, again, is that there, there is progress. Our report is a bit unique because we do track both gender and race, ethnicity, and I think clearly there's been more focus on gender diversity um, in the boardroom, and and certainly I think our alliance and Deloitte believe both are very important, Mm -hmm. as well as more um, broad um, considerations around how you think about diversity, certainly generational diversity, diversity of experience, thought, perspective, et cetera. Um, but, But gender is one that is getting, you know, an increasing amount of attention, not just from organizations that perhaps have an interest in advancing diversity. Maybe it's the 30% Club, which has a goal of 30% women in the boardroom, or groups like Catalyst, Paradigm for Parity, mm-hmm. again, the Alliance. Um, but um, one thing that is a bit unique that has, I think, really started to change the landscape and is, in fact, um, I believe, having an impact on accelerating the pace of change is uh, the interest that board diversity is receiving from outside investors. It's a very interesting point to see where all these the, the influences are coming from. Absolutely. This is Women at Work on Business Radio here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Deb DeHaas, who is vice chairman and national managing partner of the Center for Board Effectiveness at Deloitte. If at any point during the conversation you have a question or you want to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942. 7866. Deb, I want to back up for a minute because um, you, you just shared a lot of important information with us, and I want to unpack it a little bit. Um, and it's about the motivation to diversify, and particularly this difference between small and large companies. And why is it that larger companies are more diverse at the board level? Is it be, is it easier for them to do it? Do, are they getting more pressure? Is it from the outside investors that you just mentioned? Well, I think it's all of the above, and I do think, again, back to just to reinforce a point I made earlier, um, I do feel that, first of all, there is um, quantitative research by a variety of organizations, um, including organizations like Credit Suisse, their research institute demonstrated that women, uh, boards that had women uh, involved outperformed comparable businesses with all male boards mm-hmm. by 26% worldwide, and, and that was over a six-year period. And um, as my grandmother would say, that turns into a lot of chocolate bars. <laughs> it does. It does. And, you know, there's um, there's other studies that have looked at the fact that um, they've looked at things like having women on boards resulting in better uh, risk oversight mm-hmm. and and having fewer instances of things like controversial business practices, et cetera. So there is both, I think, quantitative and qualitative uh, data out there. Um, but I do feel that this um, uh, outside-in lens that's being applied, it's um, certainly focused on larger companies, but I think increasingly um, some of the largest investors, um, just because of the, the span of influence they have on both large mid-cap and small-cap companies, um, they're focused not on not just on the large companies, but on the smaller ones as well. And as a result, um, I think it will escalate the, the pace of change. So when you have outside factors shaping the board, um, how hard is it to move from 
diversity to inclusion. Um, how do you connect the dots there so that you're not just putting people in the room to check a box, but you're actually creating a room that can function together? Yeah, I think that's such an important uh, question, Laura. And you referenced earlier um, the role that I previously held at Deloitte, where I had the privilege of being our firm's first uh, chief inclusion officer. And, you know, when you look at our organization, along with many others, we've been focused on advancing women and diversity for for many years. In fact, at Deloitte, we started this effort in the mid-1990s, and so we've been working on it for more than, than 25 years, and, and we're very proud of everything we've accomplished, but we still know we have a lot more work to do. But one of the things that we found and, and was impactful as we very intentionally shifted the conversation to include both uh, diversity and inclusion was um, the importance of inclusion in driving uh, engagement. In really, a, a phrase I like to use is that inclusion, in, in fact, uh, unleashes the power uh, of uh, diversity. It's mm-hmm. beautifully and, put. And one of the things that certainly I think we've seen is that, you know, inclusion is, in fact, about how people feel. Um, do they feel they belong? Do they feel they're treated fairly? Uh, and and with respect, and, and are they able to, in fact, uh, bring their authentic selves to work or to the boardroom and, and be valued for those unique skills, experiences, perspectives that they they bring? And so, you know, I think in, in terms of driving an inclusive culture, whether it's at a company level or at a, at a board level, um, it needs to happen on sort of two levels. It needs to be really driven by that tone at the top, Mm-hmm. Again, the board, executive leadership, um, and reinforcing why that's important. Um, but then also extremely important is what are those behaviors and those traits of inclusive leaders and how do they manifest itself in the behaviors that impact an individual employee on a day-to-day basis? And as you know, you think about how most of us conduct our work on a day-to-day basis, again, whether it's in the boardroom or Mm -hmm. or in whatever role we play inside an organization, we're impacted so much by our direct manager, by those members of our team. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the power of thinking about inclusion is how do you um, create an environment where those behaviors really do allow um, those diverse experiences, perspectives to come to the table. And again, Boards and companies today, the pace of change is so fast. Um, the need to be innovative and to be hopefully the disruptor versus the disruptee. <laughs> right. um, it's really important to bring a diverse set of, of experiences to, to help solve what we all know are very complicated problems. And, and speaking of those experiences and those problems, would you help make real for us? There are a lot of people, obviously, who sit on boards, know what boards do, but I also think there are a lot of listeners out there, and particularly young listeners, for whom these, these may be terms that they're familiar with, but they don't know what they really mean. Mm-hmm. What is a board member's collective and individual responsibility, and how do people, um, how do you develop those skills, and how do you get onto a board? Yeah. Well, let me try to break because they're all um, those are big questions <laughs> and, and different questions. So let me just maybe start with sort of a, a basic level setting for those who may be a little less familiar with how does the role of the board differ from that of um, management. And again, there is a spectrum of which governance and uh, board leadership can can fall on. But I think a very fundamental difference is that you know management is really tasked with um, running the day-to-day operations of the company, really being accountable for um, execution, um, for delivering strategy. And a very significant difference from the board is the board is really there in um, an oversight uh, capacity. They don't manage. Mm -hmm. They are, in fact, um, oversight. And there is a line, I think, that has to be sort of determined where it is and, and needs to be some pretty clear understanding of, you know, which side is management on and which side does uh, the board sit on. And there are certainly things, whether it's strategy and culture, that they jointly share. Um, but um, that oversight capacity really sits with the board. And there's a couple of terms that are often used, this importance of duty of care, 
and that really requires a director to perform his or her responsibilities with the care that a you know reasonably prudent person would exercise mm-hmm. under similar circumstances and the presumption they're going to be acting in an informed manner manner and then the idea of duty of loyalty and that's really requiring a, a board member in good faith to protect the interests of the companies and its key shareholders and stakeholders and to refrain from doing anything that would injure or cause harm uh, to the company. So the sort of um, duty of care, duty of loyalty are sort of very key tenets of, um, of, uh, of board oversight. Um, you know, how do people get on boards and, and what does the pipeline look like? Um, you know, the most boards um, have a fairly um, regimented process for how they they think about the um, characteristics of board members uh, that they need on their board. And, um, you know, many boards, I think, are looking for people who bring, um, you know, very strong uh, business critical thinking skills. They're, they're strategic. Uh, they're often looking for um, perhaps a set of um, some specific uh, technical skills or experience. So some that have been very um, valued over time are things like people who bring financial acumen. And in fact, there is a requirement on a public company board to have a certain level of uh, financial expertise mm-hmm. uh, on that board. Um, certainly things like uh, global experience, um, uh, operational experience, and, and a, a skill set that's really highly valued today, and this will, I think, totally make sense when I say it, is given the pace of change and the impact of technology, um, looking for people who bring strong technology skills, um, perhaps experiences in technology-oriented companies or industries. Those are all skills that are that are highly sought after. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say, again, I know a bit of a long-winded answer, mm-hmm. but just try to take it address useful. the three parts of the question. <laughs> you know, the third part really is about um, uh, the process of identifying uh, board members. And so I would say that most companies under the leadership of what they call the Nominating and Governance Committee, um, they're really charged with um, looking at the current composition of the board, um, trying to make sure that the current composition is, in fact, appropriate to be able to fulfill those oversight responsibilities in the most uh, in important and impactful ways. Um, and then over time, perhaps based on either um, tenure requirements of the board, perhaps term limits, or perhaps a mandatory retirement age, um, where would they anticipate board turnover? How do they plan for that? And, and then who's in their pipeline? This is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Deb DeHaas, who is Vice Chairman and National Managing Partner of the Center for Board Effectiveness at Deloitte. If you want to join our question, our conversation, or you have questions for Deb, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 here on Women at Work. So, Deb, there was a lot in that answer that was meaningful, you know, in defining what are the characteristics that... Um, is are required for or needed for participation on a board, um, and the idea of term limits. And so I, I want to I'm going to explore all of these, whether it's in the next you know seven eight minutes or in the second half of the show. But you listed things like business acumen, but in particular critical thinking skills. And you noted that in the duty of care, they're meant to be informed. They need prudence. Um, they need to be you know responsible. To what degree? Is the ability to think creatively and to think differently meaningful on these boards? Um, are are they comprised of people who may come from different businesses, but they have similar skill sets, or is there diversity of skill sets amongst the people? Yeah, that's such a great question, Laura. And one tool that many boards are leveraging and actually sometimes, in many cases, disclosing particularly for public companies in their annual proxy statement, is what they call a skills matrix. And they may identify, again, a whole series of skills or experiences that mm-hmm. they feel are important. And then, you know, trying to understand which individual um, board member may uh, contain some of those attributes and then being able to step back and say, what's the collective power um, of the board? So again, in this environment of technological change, um, one of the the 
skill sets that has probably been most highly pursued in um, the past few years are people who bring those strong technology mm-hmm. skills who understand change around digital transformation, et cetera. So, um, but it's, it's both looking at individual skill sets and then what's the collective set of skills. How do they all come support. together? Exactly. Um, so it's interesting to look that in tracking diversity, obviously we track the things that we can report, like age, um, gender, um, it's interesting to see that what you described here is really fundamentally cognitive diversity. Yeah, I, you know, absolutely. And I think certainly um, one of the things that um, I know our organization and that I personally believe in is that you really benefit from both. Mm-hmm. So thinking about some of the more traditional and quantitative things you can do to um, look at diversity, again, um, age, um, gender, race, ethnicity. Um, But I think some of the things that those do end up um, relating to is individuals of a particular age. And and one area that I think hasn't been tracked as much as others, but I think is going to become increasingly important, is generational uh, diversity on boards. And in fact, you know, the average age of of public company board members is, is 63. And many boards have now expanded the mandatory retirement age to what was, if they had one, perhaps it was 70, then it was moved to 72, and now 75. And certainly people are living longer. They they are vibrant and able to contribute at very high levels um, of, of, of many ages. And, in fact, some boards don't have a mandatory retirement age for that very reason. But I think just given if you look at the demographics of the talent base, the demographics of the customer base, there's incredible value and, again, different experiences that um, perhaps generationally diverse board members will, will bring to that, to that group. So sometimes the more traditional um, metrics can, in fact, also perhaps bring cognitive diversity as well. It's going to be interesting to see, and it's also going to be interesting to explore this in our second half hour. So in the first half hour, one of the things that we were talking about is there are multiple factors that spark um, a board to um, an organization to try and build a more diverse board. Um, some of it may be the ethics of it. Some of it may be that they're dr- that they're internally driven to improve outcomes commensurate with report what reports have told us about the impact of diversity. And sometimes it's pressure coming from the outside in. Talk to us a little more about what that looks like and how that happens. Yeah, I think one thing that's been um, noteworthy is, first of all, there's been a number of organizations that have been trying to um, promote diversity in the boardroom. And we mentioned a few of them earlier, Catalyst, uh, 2020 Women on Boards, the 30% Club, Women Corporate Directors, um, so many organizations. But over the past few years, I think one significant shift has been how investors have begun to weigh into um, this particular topic. And some of the largest, most um, impactful investors in terms of the breadth of their ownership, including um, investors such as State Street, BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, mm-hmm. uh, the New York City controller, et cetera, um, have started to become very outspoken about their expectations of the companies that they invest in and their um, diversity on their boards. So you may recall, and obviously it's International Women's Week, um, in fact, two years ago uh, this week, State Street um, launched the Fearless Girl and uh, positioned that statue <laughs> down on, on Wall Street. Which and I wished had stayed. It, it, it's, yes, it's still um, in, a, in a visible place, um, which is good. And I don't know if you know this, but um, just this week they um, made a simil- similar replica, and it's now in front of the London Stock Exchange. Oh, no, that's marvelous. Well. Right. Um, but that was a very visible demonstration of their commitment um, to advancing women uh, on boards. And there's a few interesting statistics, I think, around their efforts. So one of the things that they did is they reached out to a number of companies and let them know how important this was to them. They made it clear that beginning in 2020, if companies did not have at least one woman on their board in the U.S., U.K., and Australia, they would vote against um, all members of the Nomination and Governance Committee, 
And in 2021, they wow. would expand that to Canada, Europe, and Japan. So that has real teeth. It has real teeth for the board. Because while and, California has, um, you know, there are fines to boards for companies that are on the Fortune 500, $150,000 fine is not painful. Right. And so one of the things that um, State Street actually reported back on this week that I thought was very impactful in their first two years, more than 420 companies globally who had previously had no women on their boards added women. To that's their fantastic. Board. Okay. So that's, so that's real progress. And, um, you know, BlackRock has put out, you know, sort of similar expectations. Their view is that companies should have at least uh, two women, and they've been on a, a writing campaign and, and having investor discussions with some of those companies. The New York City Controller and organizations like uh, CalPERS in California, again, are doing the same thing. Um, And then the proxy advisory firms, uh, ISS and Glass-Lewis, who um, many organizations leverage their um, advice in terms of uh, their voting policies, have both uh, come forward indicating that they will um, generally uh, perhaps vote against the chair of the NOMGOV committee or, or change their voting policies if there's a lack of diversity on the board. So I do believe that's had an impact on the accelerated pace of change. We did see more change both from a gender standpoint but also from a race ethnicity mm-hmm. standpoint from 2016 to 2018. And we're very, uh, very hopeful that pace of change will accelerate. Um, I had mentioned earlier the goal early on was to have 40% diversity by 2020. Uh, the pace of change right now would it would indicate that will happen in 2024. So not as quickly as was as was hoped, but perhaps that acceleration will um, move up that date um, if it continues. Well, at least it's within the the life cycle of that fearless girl before she's a grown woman. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with this pressure to diversify boards coming from investors um, and affecting so many companies. Now, granted, it's starting with one woman on each board, but it needs to grow from there. Um, I can hear two different conversations going on. One is, thank goodness there are so many extraordinarily capable women who belong on boards that should make a pathway for them. And the voice of people who say, I can't find enough women who are qualified to do this. Talk to me about the pipeline. How how robust is it? How healthy is it? What are the holes in it? Well, um, first of all, I think we strongly believe at Deloitte that there is a robust um, pipeline of qualified directors um, who encompass people of all sorts of different backgrounds. And I think one thing that has impacted board diversity for a long time is that the most important characteristic that was pursued historically was looking for someone who was either a current or a former CEO. And as you know, there's there's just been very limited diversity, both from a, a gender and a race ethnicity perspective. Right. That's going to preclude, that right there is going to preclude so much talent from making its way onto a board. Exactly. So what we've really seen in the last five plus years is a widening of the aperture in terms of the skills and experience mm-hmm. uh, that are being looked at. And, you know, one of the things that we've been very focused on at Deloitte is helping to build what we would call board-ready uh, candidates, and we've been executing a variety of programs uh, focused on helping to prepare uh, both men and women for um, board service. And just a few statistics that we're excited about: uh, in the last year alone, we had over a thousand uh, individuals who went through some of our board-ready programs across the country, um, of which 80% were were women uh, and diverse leaders. And when you, we've been doing this now for several years, and it's probably um, two and a half times that in terms of the total numbers. So we do think there are a number of candidates out there. It's just perhaps people don't know how to access them. And a story I'll share is a client who reached out um, in 2018. They had investors who had given them feedback that they were um, not happy with the fact that they did not have any uh, di- gender diversity on their board. And I had the opportunity to spend some time with this company and to understand what some of their issues were. And they were a small cap company, logistics, transportation. Um, they didn't believe there were a lot of women who necessarily understood their industry. They had some specific skill sets and experiences uh, of someone who had uh, work experience in Asia. And we were able to leverage our network of individuals that we've gotten to know 
and we provided them with a group of candidates um, that we felt were board ready and met their criteria. Um, and it was very exciting a few months later where they were able to find um, a fantastic woman who had worked at a very um, large and significant Fortune 20 company who fit exactly what they were looking for. So I think those people are out there. It's just leveraging different networks Mm -hmm. um, to find them. So um, talk to me about how you find them um, and how women can find um, their way into these networks. Yeah, and I think, by the way, one point I just want to make sure, we've talked a lot about gender, but one of the things that we have focused on is diversity from a race, ethnicity perspective. Importantly, and, and that's thank a, you. That's the place where there is there are clearly still gaps, um, and the movement has been slow. So um, we're partnering with organizations within the Alliance for Board Diversity, like ELC, Hossier, LEAP, Black Corporate Directors, to really impact um, diversity as well. Um, but first of all, I think um, for um, individuals who aspire to be on boards, it's um, going through programs, whether they're at Deloitte or NACD or many other organizations that have board-ready types of programs. It's letting people know that this is something you aspire to and getting their um, advice and perspectives. And then probably one of the most important opportunities is to get sponsorship um, inside their company. Um, When CEOs and other board members and leaders sponsor individuals or support them and try to connect them to opportunities, um, that's when things really seem to to happen. Um, Search firms are being used in significant numbers of the searches that occur, Mm -hmm. but um, when the outreach is broader to different networks, to perhaps people that come from different places, um, I think that's when we start to see Um, more progress around adding diversity. It's interesting. The advice that you're giving about that is the same advice we give for basically every stage of career, which is um, and to let people know what where you're hoping to go, be open to getting advice and Absolutely. some mentorship, and also to ask for and seek sponsorship so that people can help advance you into these opportunities. Absolutely. And you've mentioned twice these programs. Could you talk to me about what do you learn in these programs? What skills do they develop? Well, part of it is trying to give them some of the the basics um, around uh, governance. And, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the aspects of duty of care, duty of loyalty, Mm -hmm. talking about some of the basic governance requirements um, that public companies have to adhere to, um, talking about how do boards actually operate Um, And then in addition to some of the more just traditional governance topics, what are some of those issues that are, you know, truly top of mind and important uh, for boards today? And, you know, it's a a long list, Um, you know, whether it's uh, cybersecurity, whether it's business model disruption, whether it's um, trade and geopolitical volatility. These are all issues that are very real that boards um, are facing. And so we really tried to um, create a menu of topics that we think are uh, important for those individuals to be aware of and to be thinking about and to be knowledgeable of as they look to position themselves for board service. Deb, talk to me a little bit about the difference of getting people who have worked globally and people who um, come from other countries. Is that an aspect of diversity that's being sought? I would say absolutely, and um, certainly there's a number of individuals from the U.S. who who sit on um, boards that are outside the U.S., Um, but I think increasingly U.S. boards are looking for individuals who have um, unique and impactful global experience. Obviously, there's lots of different ways to achieve that, um, but in this uh, world that continues to be uh, increasingly connected where... um, We know that uh, markets are going to continue to evolve. Um, I think that international experience and that cultural awareness are skill sets that are highly sought after. Certainly. I want to ask about a few other dimensions of diversity. I know that when we look within an organization in the hiring pipeline, we're also looking for um, sexual orientation and that diversity and to make sure that it's an environment where people can be their whole selves, be comfortable um, and feel safe and also bring the diversity of experience and that it's not only so that they can be their best selves, but their experience will inform um, often critical ways that that companies serve their customers. 
customers. To what degree is that being addressed at the board level? Um, I would say it's it's clearly um, starting. <clears throat> excuse me, starting to be um, addressed. But I do think just going back to a point I made earlier, I think some of the more um, traditional lenses are are still probably getting um, more focus, and so there's clearly more work to do to bring uh, some of these different aspects of of diversity um, into consideration. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, One of the things along those lines that I want to talk about is the zero-sum game, that headset. Um, We know that all too often there's the perception that if one group advances, um, it means that they're going to take um, opportunity away from the dominant group that has been in that position. And I know we've talked a lot on this show about how to dispel that notion and recognize that there's room for everybody. Um, It was interesting, though, that in one of the charts that's in the report, and I have to recommend the report. It's on the website. You can download it. There's an easy-to-read PDF, um, and it helps make all of these numbers visual and really easy to comprehend. Um, Appropriately, there's tracking how many seats are gained and how many seats are lost by different groups. Right. And for the increase in seats that are gained, there was a loss of seats by white men. Now, that is naturally happening here, but I want to probe it a little bit. So one, how finite are the number of board seats? Is that a number that grows and expands, or is it really a zero-sum game? You know, Laura, that's such an interesting question. And if you do look at the numbers across the Fortune 500, um, and again, dating back to the one the report started in, 2004, 2010 for the the Fortune 500, um, what you do see is that the number of board seats had actually remained relatively flat Mm. and, in fact, was even declining a bit. And the average board is probably 10 to 12 people. So, again, you multiply that by um, 500 companies, you know, you're somewhere in that uh, 5 to 6,000 range. And I think one of the things that is most interesting, and I think definitely was impactful on the acceleration of change between 2016 and 2018 was that it was really the first time we had seen a notable increase in the number of seats. Um, Actually, 230 seats were added in the Fortune 500 companies, which, again, had just not happened. If anything, the numbers had stayed flat or had even Mm -hmm. declined. And so I think what was very positive about that was that um, much of the change um, really resulted in both uh, first-time board members and board members who were, in fact, more diverse than they had been historically. So the loss in terms of, um, in this case, uh, Caucasian men, there was a loss in total seats, but it was much smaller than it had been in the past. And so um, I think that actually was impactful in terms of creating more capacity to add diversity to these boards by the fact that they did add seats. And also probably easing the pain a little bit. That's right. <laughs> I'm Laura Arrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM on Channel 132. I'm talking with Deb DeHaas, who is Vice Chairman and National Managing Partner of the Center for Board Effectiveness at Deloitte. Um, has our conversation sparked a question or a comment? We'd love to hear from you at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So I just want to probe this a little bit further. Um, in these situations where there's now changes happening to the demographics of the board, and while there's been happily some increase in the number of seats on the board, um, there are really the people who have been there before, um, largely older white men. What are boards doing to help the culture within the room so that the new population that's coming in, both women and all kinds of underrepresented groups, um, can have a voice and not be the target of hostility? That's such an important question, and I do see boards spending a lot of time really trying to think about how do we make this a high-performing team? I mean, that's really what you're aspiring to do as a board is to have it be a high-performing team so they can truly add the most value to the company and its shareholders and stakeholders and and really exercise those critical oversight um, responsibilities. So first of all, most boards go through a very robust onboarding process uh, for a new board member. They have a chance to meet with key members of management they have a chance to get out and to really understand the business, perhaps visit um, spread out locations or offices around the world to uh, get to know the culture. Um, and then increasingly, I'm seeing um, that boards are identifying a bit of a mentor 
um, relationship mm. um, on the board. Um, I know that's something that we employed very effectively at um, at our board at Deloitte and also on some of the nonprofit boards. I'm a trustee at Northwestern University. We've leveraged that for for many years, and um, that's a very helpful thing. Um, one of the things we want these board members to do is to get their voice as quickly as possible so that we're really leveraging their expertise and the value they bring um, as quickly as we can. And I think the other thing that mentoring relationship can do very real time is to you know, help them sort of understand what's the board culture. Are there some do's and don'ts? In any team, there's some norms. And how, what norms should they know about? What norms can be challenged? Um, how can they find their voice? And, um, and then oftentimes giving them very real feedback um, right after a board meeting uh, to indicate how they can be even more uh, impactful in the boardroom. The other thing is boards are increasingly leveraging um, evaluation techniques, um, both at the individual board member and of the full board, to really continue to enhance their uh, effectiveness. And as part of that, if that process works well, that also helps them identify where they may have gaps and experiences or skills that they really need to be thinking about as they continue to refresh the board. We'd like to talk about boards having very robust refreshment processes um, to ensure, again, that the board's best prepared to provide value to the shareholders and the stakeholders. It's comforting and it's inspiring on multiple levels. One is that for the women who are in the pipeline, who could and should be on boards, they have so much to contribute, to understand that even if you are underrepresented in that room, which you most likely will be, or if you're from another underrepresented group, to know that you're going to walk into an environment where serious investment is being made in helping you be successful individually and as part of that team. Absolutely. And that's where I think some of the leadership roles on the board are so important. I mean, ultimately, either the board chairman or the um, presiding or lead director, they play such a key role in, again, facilitating uh, the dialogue to ensure that it's going to be most impactful. And that also happens at at the committee level as well. And one of the things we do track in our report that I think is is um, provides hope is that some of those key leadership roles are continuing to become more diverse um, as well. And I think that will just bode well for, again, ensuring both bringing more diverse thinking uh, to the broader board or committee, but also in ensuring the success of all those members of either the full board or, or of the committee. I want to dial into you now and how you actually found your voice so that you could be impactful. How did you wind up in this line of work? Um, well, Laura, that's a, that's a great question, and, and it's, a bit, um, it's a bit bittersweet, to be honest, to talk about um, today. So um, my mother, Mary Lou DeHaas, um, passed away two weeks ago at, um, at age 90. Oh. Amazing woman. She had a great life. Um, so we feel so blessed that we were able to um, have her in our lives for as long as we did. But um, interestingly, and you, it's probably the math will make sense when I say this, uh, given her age, um, she graduated from the University of Pittsburgh in 1951. Um, she was the only uh, woman uh, in the accounting and business program at Pitt at that time. and so The only one. The only woman. And she would um, tell the story often that um, um, she had a professor, and back in the day, apparently, they had what they called drop cards that were physical cards, and, and that's what you did to drop a class. And so she would, <laughs> she would walk into her um, accounting uh, course, and this one professor would say to her, Mary Lou, um, here's your drop card because I'm sure you're going to drop out because, you know, this is a field for men. You can't possibly cut it uh, in this profession. Um, well, my mom was a very determined uh, woman, and I think, if anything, this made her more determined to find her path uh, to success. Um, so she did finish, graduated with high honors, um, started her career. She had the opportunity to start in public accounting, uh, or an in industry. She chose industry, and she, she worked outside the home for several years to put my father through uh, medical school, and then she was very devoted uh, to our family. Um, but as I think back and as we talk about what are some of the attributes of um, inclusive leaders and that uh, concept of, of um, you know, your values, creating a sense of belonging, fairness, respect, um, inspiring confidence, uh, she did that in in my sister and me and my brother. 
um, and I think really gave us a sense that we could uh, achieve uh, anything. And so while she wasn't a, a titan of, of business, she was an incredible leader in, in our community. I grew up in a small town in western Pennsylvania, other side of the state from you, uh, Washington, <laughs> Pennsylvania. And so after uh, my mom jumped out of the business world, she just was an incredible leader in our community. She started the Head Start program in our community. She was the first woman uh, trustee and elder um, of our church, and then she was the first woman on our city council. Um, So she really led by example and just was an incredible inspiration, again, to all of us. And she was so thrilled um, when I decided to take the path of of business uh, and accounting. So so that was a lot of my path to getting uh, into the profession and uh, something I know she took a lot of pride in. Well, Deb, first of all, thank you for sharing this with us. And we not only are sorry for your loss, we're also grateful that you honored her by sharing the story today. Because in addition to all of those things, it sounds like she was brilliant and brave and gave you an extraordinary role model and that we now get to share a little bit. So thank you. Well, thank you for that opportunity. I, I'm thrilled I was able to do that. Um, I think... I'm also pretty confident you inspired a lot of women out there today and a lot of underrepresented people who should find their way to boards. If people want to find more out about the work that you're doing or how they can get involved, where can they go for information? Yeah, we would love to to have that happen. And one of the things that we do in our Center for Board Effectiveness, we've talked about some of the programs that we do have both for um, aspiring and future board members, but also for current board members. Um, We also um, publish a lot of information about key governance uh, topics. So certainly if you go to our website um, at at Deloitte.com and if you type in uh, the Center for Board Effectiveness or Governance, it will help you um, get to our site. And if you would like to access the report, as you talked about, if you um, input the missing pieces report, that will allow you to also um, access the link um, or the PDF of this particular research project. Terrific. Deb, I'm honored and grateful that you joined us today. Thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, and Laura, thank you so much for the opportunity. As I mentioned, I thoroughly enjoy your broadcast. I love the diversity of women and topics that you bring. And so you're just doing really important work. And it was a, it was really an honor to be part of this. Oh, Deb, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio on SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. Many thanks to my guest, Deb DeHaas. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.